Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we're Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, a weekly podcast that gets the best guests and drills down on the most important topics in the drone world. Sean, what are we covering this episode, and how does it fit into this month's subject, the proposed Ops Over People rules? Well, James, we discussed the research behind the rule with Assure's Dave Artiburn of the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and the potential impact of the rule on the commercial drone industry with Lisa Elman of the Commercial Drone Alliance. This episode, we'll discuss the Operations Over People Pathfinder, another major research effort that hopefully impacted the proposed small UAS ops over people rule. Tobin Fisher is the co-founder and CEO of Vantage Robotics, manufacturer of the SNAP UAS used extensively by CNN in their ops over people research. Yeah, okay, well, I'm not holding my breath on having prior research impact the draft rule after talking to Dave Arterburn, for sure. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I think the FAA research gave the FAA a solid methodology to assess risk to people. From drone impact, I think they got the numbers wrong. And I agree from Lisa Elman from the Commercial Drone Alliance that the prohibition on ops over moving vehicles seemed to be just a last-minute ad from DOT without much thought and definitely no research behind it. But uh, maybe maybe Tobin will change my mind. Uh, before we start, though, Sean, tell us what a Pathfinder is. Okay, so Pathfinders. Pathfinders were an idea from the previous FAA administrator, Michael Werta. He chartered several leading companies to use their own research and some to help from the FAA and to kind of figure out how to tackle tough regulatory problems. BNSF Railroad led a Pathfinder to lead out how to fly drones beyond line of sight down an easement to inspect linear infrastructure, in this case, railroads. railroads. Precision Hawk tackled flying beyond line of sight without having an easement to fly long. CNN, who Tobin is very familiar with because he's been instrumental in that those challenges, handled operations over people. And these were the original three. Then a little later on, FAA added Khaki, uh, Griffin Sensors, uh, Sensifusion to lead a drone detection pathfinder kind of a little later on. The Pathfinder program eventually got absorbed by the Integrated Pilot Program, which everyone refers to as the IPP, and the FAA hasn't initiated another Pathfinder in at least three years. The idea was to get industry to help fund solutions to some of their toughest problems and guide FAA rulemaking. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, for the audience, we will be doing um, programs on the IPP later. It's just uh, we gotta, we're going to be covering... Um Ops over people and some other stuff first. All right, so after that great explanation, let's bring on Tobin Fisher to explain the Ops Over People Pathfinder and how it may have helped the FAA write this draft. Tobin, welcome to Drone Beat. Tobin, before we get started, would you mind just kind of giving us a kind of a broad overview of what is Vantage Robotics and what do you do there? We are a drone company. Uh, our focus since the start has really been focusing on what we see as the practical challenges of drones. Uh, when I started Vantage, co-found Vantage with Joe Vandenkirk back in 2013, we saw a very 
very, very powerful technology with drones uh, that was extremely impractical. It reminded me a lot of hmm. the computer industry in the 1970s. Uh, and in the case of drones, the impracticalities that we saw uh, were a little different than the computer industry, uh, although a lot of parallels. First and foremost, they were extremely dangerous. Uh, I had a fairly bad cut from a propeller early on that really made me very aware of that. Uh, the interfaces were extremely impractical. Right to the face, uh, right? They, you had a cut to the face? Uh, it or was the like hand? my arm. Yeah, down arm. down okay. my arm. It was a number of slices down my arm. Uh, from really innocuous-looking plastic propellers, and that was really an eye-opener for me. Right. And and then they also were, at the time, at least extremely hard to take with you. So our goal and starting vantage originally was we wanted to solve the safety issue for enabling drone use near people. Uh, really, at the start, with the consumer market in mind, uh, we wanted to solve the portability issue, being able to take them with you, uh, and we wanted to solve the ease-of-use challenge of making it possible for an ordinary person to really capture the amazing power right. of drones. Uh, and over the course of our history, I'd say that focus has remained remarkably consistent. Uh, you know, our, our target customer has changed over time and evolved. And so this challenge of making a drone safe and easy to use you know, ultimately is a, is a very meaty challenge. Uh, it's one that we've been working on for the last five years and – Wow. Uh, very proud of the uh, work we've done and the significant progress you've made over that time. Uh, and frankly, I think that we're working on it for at least the next five years. Uh, what's came out of the last five years of work is the SNAP UAV. Uh, this drone started out as a product targeting consumers. Uh, mm -hmm. We've certainly sold an awful lot of them to consumers. Uh, but it subsequently also found a number of very successful applications in commercial use cases as well, uh, both in journalism as well as inspections and law enforcement. So what's uh, what's the secret behind the SNAP? I mean, why, why is it selling so much and why is it so good for ops over people? Uh, it's certainly a combination of things uh, that's made it good. And our focus has been, let's look at all of the challenges that make drones impractical, uh, and figure out ways to to fix address those without removing the the power and potential of drones. Uh, and so our challenge was: how do you make spinning open blades safe without compromising flight time and wind performance? Mm -hmm. And how do you make a structure that can ultimately hit someone in the event of a unplanned descent? Which the reality is, at some point, can happen to any drone and needs to be planned right. on. And how do you do that in a way that's not going to hurt them? Uh, and that was a, a especially challenging problem. Uh, how did you handle both of those? The solving the open blades was ultimately a shroud structure. Okay. Although the devil's in the details on that. Making a shroud is very, very easy. Making a shroud that will both protect the blades but also be light enough not to compromise flight time be aerodynamic enough not to massively hinder wind performance, be manufacturable, uh, be portable, that required literally hundreds and hundreds of iterations. And you know, we had a process where we would make a design, uh, we would test it in the morning for efficiency, we would then go drop it off my uh, my back porch in the early days, later uh, more... Uh, Very scientific. <laughs> Highly functional, uh, and we would watch how it would break. We'd watch how it deform. 
Uh, and one of the things we really learned out of that is the power of a deformable structure for energy absorption. Ah. Uh, and we started looking into ways that we could use that structure as a method, not only of protecting propellers, but also a method for absorbing energy on impact. Uh, and so we became expert on one of the materials. Ah, that just like those impact-absorbing impact. bumpers we all have on our automobiles. I gotcha. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, those have been optimized over decades for the use case of driving on roads, uh, no one's figured out really what the design is optimized for absorbing energy when flying and takes into account uh, all of the additional constraints of uh, you know, really extreme weight requirements. And, and those bumpers were extremely ugly in the early 1970s when the Department of Transportation... <laughs> Sean's still mad about the NG yes, midget yeah, going. I'm thinking more, uh, more of the metal bumpers on yeah, something okay, a little well, nicer than the MGP. Well, well, that's a very impressive UAS. You know, and i got to tell you what, Tobin, we might have to have you back on another segment to talk about what it's like to you know, compete against China's DJI in your market segment. But let's get on with the uh, Ops Over People Pathfinder. Uh, so how did you end up on the Ops Over People Pathfinder? Why did CNN pick you out of all of the choices they could have had uh, for Ops Over People? My understanding from Greg Agvent, uh, as well as Lisa Elman, who I know was working with Greg on the challenge, is that they had worked with another drone company. And Greg's at uh, CNN. He's the, he's the head of all air ops. Um, at CNN, just 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 to clarify who Greg is. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, so working for, with Greg at CNN and Lisa Elman at Hogan Levels, uh, they had previously uh, worked with a drone company that had gotten a very, very narrow waiver from the FAA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my understanding is what the FAA had told them is show us something different. Uh, if you just take a one of the existing drones in the market, that we see at least, you'll probably get to the same endpoint, which is that it takes a very, very small mass to achieve the kinetic energy necessary to be extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they said, show us a squishy drone or a Nerf drone, I think, with our exact words. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Did you try Nerf? I mean, that seems like an approach, too. <laughs> Put some light lighters on a Nerf ball? That's right. We, it, it, it's uh, always hard to say we've tried everything, but I'm sure the things we haven't tried, but uh, okay. we've tried a lot of things. Okay. We've tried I'm a writing lot, that one down as, a, as a, my next drone, so gotcha. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, specifically foam, uh, you know, one of the challenges, it takes a very large volume of foam to absorb the necessary energy that's created on impact. Right. Okay. Uh, so you so did look into we, it. Okay. Oh, we absolutely looked into it, no okay. doubt. Uh, you know, what we found is the deformation of higher strength materials as well as frangibility impact uh, was more effective at absorbing energy on impact. Uh, and that's ultimately what uh, Greg at CNN saw in Vantage and led them to contact us. Okay, so uh, you, you kind of a, a, you know represented um, the you know the frangible or the impact absorbing uh, type drone. Is it bottom line? You think that's why they picked you for it? Uh, it is. It is. As, as far as I'm aware, we were the first practical product that used this idea. Uh, and that was what got CNN interested. Uh, the road from there was quite long, right? Uh, but that was the start of the conversation. So tell us, with your experience with CNN, what were the three major lessons that you you learned from those early, early Pathfinder days? Well, I think the first was a really deep respect, ultimately, for how 
unforgiving gravity is and <laughs> the amazing destructive power of a blade. Okay, I'm a political science major. I know gravity's bad, so I, yeah. <laughs> even I. Okay, so gravity, lesson number one, respect lesson gravity. Lesson number one, gravity, which sounds yeah, obvious. Yeah, but yeah, you, yeah. You so the apple will fall from the tree. Exactly, and you drop them from even a modest height uh, and just seeing the amazing power that's unleashed when these things hit the ground and blow apart. Uh, that gave us a very deep respect for the problem we were solving and the risks that were there. Uh and that, that was our starting point for engaging with the FAA. Uh, and you know, for me, the FAA was a uh, scary, faceless entity in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that when we started, uh, I remember my first trip to D.C. to meet with the FAA. Uh, I owned five wetsuits uh, and one, one real suit. Uh, which I understood I should be wearing to be with the FAA. And the real suit I owned was a summer suit, and it was January. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, that made me feel uh, woefully unprepared for the meeting. Uh, and you know, I must say the thing that I really took away from meeting with the FAA was it is a team of extremely smart, extremely well-meaning people who were trying to figure out how to solve this problem of uh, Pandora's box being open uh, with a tool set that was designed for a completely different industry, the air, airline industry. Right. Uh, and I think seeing that problem just a little bit from the inside has given me an awful lot more respect for their approach to rulemaking, the path they've taken between here and there, uh, and Really, starting from the the start, the initial perspective that these are very, very smart, very okay. good people who are trying to keep uh, okay. So gravity keep people in the country safe. Gravity bad. FAA good. We're yeah. right at the fifteen minute <laughs> point here, so we're going to have to take okay. a, a quick break, Tobin. But uh, when we get back. Uh, let's get into some of the more practical uh, lessons that you learned uh, for the Pathfinder. I mean, what you know, kind of what worked and what didn't work. So we'll be back after a short break. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rody and Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rody and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. Okay, we're back. All right, Tobin, we were talking about some of the lessons that you had learned from ops over people on the Pathfinder. Uh, talk to us about some of the more practical stuff. I mean, you know, what worked, what didn't work? Was it, you know, flying offset from people? Was it, you know, flying over roofs? I mean, let's, let's get into the, the technical details. Sure. I think well, the, the big challenge that we saw in our engagement with the FAA and the process of developing a, a safe approach for ops over people was the data set they were working with was kinetic energy on impact. Uh, and one of the challenges that we saw, and we looked at the data they had for kinetic energy and impact, and then compared it with other risk-based uh, studies for kinetic energy and impact, we saw a very, very wide range of kinetic energy risk. So if you look at, say, non-lethal munitions, 
that, that studies of non-lethal munitions showed that uh, 300 joules had a less than 1% chance of fatality. Uh, you look at studies of automobiles hitting people, 30,000 joules have less than a 10% chance of fatality. Uh, and what we took away from that was kinetic energy alone is not enough to define risk. That was a big uh, and long conversation with the FA to figure out how we could refine the uh, evaluation of risk and the understanding that it's more than just kinetic energy. Uh, and what we were able, ultimately able to get to was this idea of not just kinetic energy prior to impact, but transferred kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and notably, if you look at the proposed rulemaking, uh, it says it has to have a lower level of risk than a rigid body of the same kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that detail is actually a very important detail. Because what they're calling out there is that the their assessment of risk is based on rigid bodies. And if you can make something that's not rigid, uh, and you can show that the risk is less than that rigid body, uh, then you're okay, even if perhaps the initial kinetic energy is higher. Right. So, so maybe uh, say that one more time in that, you know, you're, you're an anomaly. And so you're kind of getting to this where, you know, what do you think about the methodology to determine that impact to risk and, you know, flying over people? Yeah, so one of the big lessons that we learned was that there is a crucial difference between kinetic energy prior to impact and kinetic energy that's actually transferred on impact. Mm-hmm. What ultimately interests someone is the kinetic energy that's transferred on impact. And so our focus was ultimately doing tests to demonstrate that there is a massively lower risk for mm-hmm. an object that transfers less kinetic energy on impact. You know, so what you're saying is, you know, an object could be going at a very high rate of speed, but the second it, uh, you know, it hits you, uh, that kinetic energy could go way down. And particularly when you're talking about you know, the, the approach that you went with where you've got a, a drone that collapses on impact, again, you know, like those impact-absorbing uh, bumpers on cars, uh, you can get a dramatically different result. Is that true? Uh, that is true. What we were ultimately able to show is that our approach for deformation and frangibility absorbs 75% of the available energy. Wow. What percent? 75%. 75%. That's amazing. So... Um, you, you represent, like you said, the you know the frangible, the break apart, and the impact absorbing um, drones. What other types of impact mitigation did CNN try? You know, parachute, tethered drones, really small drones. I mean, what, what else was out there? I know that Greg uh, has explored a lot of different approaches, uh, and I, I certainly know that they engaged with the tethered drone company and were mm-hmm. unable to get what they referred to as a commercially practical waiver Mm -hmm. Uh, and parachutes are also out there uh, and we'll be talking about parachutes next episode so yes and parachutes in my opinion are a a solution that has its place and also has its limits Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the big two of the big challenges here with parachutes one is that in the event that it hits something else and the parachute gets tangled like they're hitting a building right uh that can create a problem right uh and that is certainly a very common way that drones crash uh, and the other scenario that parachutes don't address is a flyaway. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the event that somehow the operator loses control of the drone, uh, but the parachute is not yet deployed, uh, that can also create a very okay, So you're scenario. writing these issues down, Sean. We're going to ask uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Para Zero guys when they come on there. Two good points. 
Okay, so they, they, they tried a, a, a variety of methodologies and, and not just, um, you know, frangible impact absorbing. So let's just kind of piggyback on that a little bit in that you are, you are an anomaly, obviously, in this space and well-respected within this space. Obviously, uh, Greg Adman at CNN, and you wouldn't have worked together as many years as you have. And so can you tell us just a little bit about you know, what do you think about the methodology to determine the impact risk to people in the proposed FAA rule? And, and what category do you, do you see yourself in? Because you're not quite light enough. I mean, you're, you're kind of in this purgatory area where you're, 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 you're different in a good way. <laughs> uh, we're definitely category two. Uh, we're heavier than the 0.55 pounds. Uh, so we do fall into the category two level. But barely, right? Uh, we're one point three seven pounds. Okay, so we're okay. we're a fair bit heavier okay. than the the weight defined for category two. I'm sorry, for category one that is. Yeah, and again, category one is just a flat out weight thing. So if you're higher than point five five uh, pounds, you're category one. Category two. Now, what what's the definition of that again? Category two is defined by demonstrating that your uh, risk is lower than a rigid body of uh, uh, I think they say it's eleven foot pound okay. impact energy. Okay. Uh, and notably, that definition is almost exactly the same definition that we used for our test. And Dave Arterburn uh, from Assure equated that eleven you know, foot pounds to roughly getting hit by uh, an, an eighth grader throwing a really fast pitch at uh, at a little league game. That's one equation, uh, and I think the. The key in evaluating the risk from kinetic energy is, again, what is the energy that is transferred? What are the peak forces? What are the peak pressures? What are the peak specific energies? So you have to look at it from a finer level. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say, yes, it's similar to getting hit by a baseball. Uh, you could also say it's similar to getting hit by a razor-shipped arrow that will go right through you. Uh, so it's, it really depends on what is the object. Sure. So what we did is we took objects of... Uh, previously assessed risk, uh, and we dropped them on EPS foam uh, and looked so at the impact So what's the crater. object of previous assessed risk? Right. Rigid, rigid objects. Rigid objects. So, you know, a lot of the previously assessed risk was battlefield shrapnel, for example. Yeah, I think Dave uh, mentioned solid wood blocks is what they were using. We used the impact crater as a uh, proxy for the transferred kinetic energy, the specific mm -hmm. kinetic energy transferred, uh, as well as we also drop things on force plates and measure the peak forces. Right. Uh, and then we were able to compare those against uh, SNAP and other designs that we dropped uh, in order to ultimately assess risk. You know, notably, EPS foam is something that has been very, very well studied in compression. Mm -hmm. uh, and so creating that transfer function of what is the volume displaced what is the peak maximum depth uh, mm -hmm. gives you a really nice proxy for uh, what are the chances of causing a laceration, a contusion, a cervical spine fracture, a concussion. Right. So what did the research say? Will, um, will the SNAP uh, be a Category 2 drone? SNAP will be a Category 2 drone, okay. drone absolutely. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, so you fit in, and, and you've got a uh, frangible slash impact absorbing drone uh, that uh, you know weighs uh, 1.37 pounds. So 
that sounds like a great solution for uh, you know folks who want to get high quality imagery and all all of that kind of good stuff. What do you think about the impact of the proposed uh, rules on the commercial drone industry as a whole? I mean, how would you deliver packages under the category rules, uh, category two rules? In general, uh, I haven't studied specifically the challenge to delivering packages, so right. I, I can't speak to that. Uh, in general, I'm definitely in favor of a conservative approach to rulemaking. Okay. Uh, my big fear for the industry is that there is a, a horrible accident with the drone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think there's certainly the potential of. Uh, some laws passed by Congress that has uh, a kid's name in the title of the law that was involved in a horrible accident, uh, mm-hmm. that's almost certainly going to be a knee-jerk response. But I think it could set the industry back a decade. Yeah, so... Uh, so I am certainly in favor of a measured approach. Uh, the, the, the lens I look through for... Any design we do, any operation we support, is would I feel comfortable if my two-year-old kid was down there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that lens is the right lens, in my opinion, because there will be two-year-old kids down there, and certainly better to think about it in advance than after the fact. Yeah, so you, your vision is um, you're okay with very conservative rules, and so you, you would see uh, the industry you know, essentially restricted to drones of you know a few pounds three or four pounds and and i gotta contend with it you know with the two-year-old rule i mean i, I stuck plenty of two-year-olds in, in in cars and airplanes <laughs> and took quite a bit of risk with them and uh, i you know i'll be honest with you i'm okay with uh, you know the risk of a drone you know falling out of the sky just like i'm you know okay with driving as long as there's societal benefits and uh, i think the issue is if you stick with a drone that's just a few pounds um you know we're not going to get that much benefit out of drones flying over people on that. Well, the rules give flexibility there. I think one of the things I really like about the proposed rulemaking, at least for Class 2 drones, as I study most closely, is that they do consider the potential for technology, technological progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the rule doesn't really specifically limit yourself to a two-pound drone. It just says that the risk from impact has to be lower than a rigid body of this energy. Uh, And so there's a lot of ways to make a larger drone safe and make it ultimately equivalent. And that's the challenge. And I I like the fact that there's a number of technological approaches to achieve that. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And you have to actually just kind of keep in mind that, um, you know, there's an old saying here in Washington, D.C., I stand where I sit. If you could change the rule in any way, shape, or form, what is the one thing that you would change? And, and, and give us the 15-second elevator ride here. Sure. Uh, well, as you know, I'm in favor of a conservative approach to rulemaking. And frankly, I think that the 0.55-pound intrinsically safe limit for a Class 1 drone is not sufficiently conservative. Hmm. Uh, notably, okay. a 4-gram bullet at terminal velocity has twice the energy necessary to pierce human skin. Yeah, but not uh, moving so, at 90 knots, though, does it? Uh, 90 meters per second. Uh, okay. But it, not doing it the math on that. Four, <laughs> uh, uh, it, yeah, it, it weighs four grams. So, you know, my point is ultimately is uh, there is not – there are the intrinsically safe weight is extraordinarily low, uh, certainly less than 250 grams. Uh, through mo- you know, most conventional drone designs have the potential to be – safe at over 250 grams, but the key is, the key is it depends on the design. Uh, and so I would much rather see a standardized test mm-hmm. that can evaluate all designs and ultimately level, level playing field uh, 
And I think there's a number of ways to do that. Certainly the approach that we took with EPS foam, as I understand it, is now actually part of the ASTM draft standard for evaluating safety of drugs. Well, and I think the rule covers that, doesn't it? It's going to give, uh, it said it was going to give one methodology for measuring it, but if industry had others' methodology, they were open and uh, open to research. Yes, my, my concern is specifically saying that anything under 250 grams is, uh, by definition, safe. I don't believe that's true. And my example to demonstrate that is the fact that a four-gram bullet can be dangerous uh, in free fall, uh, which I think uh, very unambiguously says that you can be dangerous at less than, than 250 grams. And then we get into probability of it actually hitting you. Wow, that's another series. We'll get you back on the show again, Tobin. Right. Well, and Tobin, unfortunately, we are out of time. Thanks a bunch for taking the time to tell us about the Ops Over People Pathfinder and your products. It's great to hear from someone who has been there for years, uh, like you have, helping the FAA figure out how to fly over people. Uh, What are we going to cover for our final episode in this series, Sean? The next episode is the last in our series on Ops Over People. We're going to be talking with an innovative Israeli company called Perizero. They make a parachute that automatically opens when it senses a drone is about to crash. Parachutes are one of the major mitigation methods to get drone operators into impact tolerances for ops over people. And we're going to find out how they work. Their CEO, Israeli Air Force General Eden Addis, will be joining us directly from Tel Aviv. Well, folks, this concludes Episode 7 of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'd like to thank our guest, Tobin Fisher of Vantage Robotics, and wish him the best of luck in a tough market competing against DJI. Hope to have you back on Drone Meet again, Tobin. Thank you so much, James and Sean. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.